0: Welcome to the Lydia McGrew Podcast and YouTube channel, where we're making common sense rigorous. I'm continuing with my discussion of name statistics in the Gospels and Acts today, and this is part of my response to a recent article by Gregor and Blaze critiquing Richard Balcom's name statistics argument from his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Today and next week, I'm going to be talking about disambiguation as part of this argument. I want to stress at the outset that this is not a portion of the argument that Gregor and Blaze address at all, but I think that it should be taken into account. I think it adds force to the argument, and it is part of Balcom's argument, and Balcom is their uh, chief foil to whom they are responding. So I think for that reason, it is a significant lacuna or gap in their article that they did not discuss name statistics at all. I'm not saying they would have been impressed by the disambiguation portion of the argument, though of course I think they should be. But I want to bring it in to make it part of my series because I think it is important. So to start with, what do I mean by disambiguation? This is something we take for granted in um, most of the modern world. I think it's true, it's certainly true in Western countries, even true in non-Western countries, that most people have at least two names. In fact, in America, we usually have a middle name, uh, though we often don't use that middle name, and then we also, of course, have nicknames, but we always have a first and a last name. It's on your birth certificate and so forth, and so, if you're talking about someone with a fairly common name, like Kyle is a fairly common name right now for a man, um, and someone says Kyle, Kyle who, then you can give a last name, and that disambiguates the first name Kyle. It, it helps at least to tell your listener which Kyle you're speaking of. This is important on all sorts of paperwork and credit ratings and so forth. Now because in first century Israel um, certain names were very popular, then it became necessary to have some kind of further indicator as to which one you were speaking of when you were using a popular name. Um, and so these would function a lot like our last names, but they could take varying forms. Perhaps a, um, a person's job, like Simon the Tanner, that would be his occupation. And of course, many of our last names developed in that way as well. Wheelwright or um, Wheeler or Smith or baker, etc., okay, um, or a person's father's name using bar, you know, so Simon Bar-Jonah is is also the, a, a different disambiguator that's used for Simon Peter, uh, the son of Jonah, um, and of course, again, you have a similar development in modern countries, um, my own last name, from my husband is McGrew, which would originally come from Scotland with Mac, which had that same son of meaning. Um, So that would be another classic disambiguator or uh, the mother of so-and-so we'll see today or the brother of so-and-so. So So family relationships or as in the case of Peter Uh, an extra name that someone else gave to him. So the fact that Jesus called him Peter, then that got added on to Simon to disambiguate Simon because it was a very popular name. So you get the idea of what a disambiguator is. And this functions, I believe, to strengthen the name statistics argument even beyond the ordinary name statistics argument. You know, you have more... uh, people in the Gospels and Acts with these popular names than with the uh, less well-known names, but you also find disambiguators tending to attach themselves to the more popular names. Um, In fact, I mentioned last time my own designation of Tier A, Tier B, Tier C. You don't find um, any of what I'm going to call today unnecessary clumps being attached to tier C names and then necessitating disambiguation. So that's what disambiguation is. Um, Richard Balcom makes a really important point, which he doesn't even draw the moral that this has for the disambiguation argument. So I'm going to use what he said and then I'm gonna draw the moral He mentions that among ancient exegetes of the Bible, so we're talking, you know, church fathers, for example, early Christians, um, it was not uncommon to conflate people that had the same name. So an example of this that he gives is the second century church father, Polycrates, who uh, actually seems to confuse Philip the deacon and Philip the member of the Twelve, even though the context in Acts where Philip the deacon is chosen with the other deacons is absolutely explicit that they were not members of the Twelve. They were in addition. Um, And Philip wasn't even all that common of a name. And yet Polycrates, um, you know, maybe just didn't have his Bible open at that moment or whatever. It wouldn't be, you know, it would be a scroll um, probably. But the point is he, he confuses them. And Baucom says this wasn't that uncommon. Um, Here's the moral of that for the disambiguation part of the argument. Based on some other things that Gregor and Blaise say in their article and that skeptics in general tend to say a lot, I suspect that a lot of the argument is going to fall back on this notion that I call a, a Cartesian deceiver scenario where the gospel authors are just being super subtle and they're figuring things out and then they're deliberately doing things like, hey, let's put a lot of Simons in there. Let's put a lot of uh, Judas in there, Judas's in there and so forth, um, based on a sort of a vague notion of which names were popular in that place and time to add to the verisimilitude of their documents, even when they're making people up. Um, When you realize that conflation was pretty common, then you realize what little good that would do them. Okay, so even when it's not a very popular name among Jews at that place in time, it's Philippus, and, and even when the context clearly distinguishes it, you still find an early church father confusing them. So this shows the unlikelihood, the improbability that An audience at the time would be impressed by that. In fact, sometimes I talk about uh, the fact that a person who doesn't know all this stuff, like uh, unnecessary details and so forth in the gospels, can sort of sense it in a kind of gestalt way and kind of uh, tumble only semi-consciously to the verisimilitude of the gospel accounts. This name statistics argument and the disambiguation argument is not of that kind. I'm going to say it right out. I don't believe it's something that an audience is going to sense in a kind of an inexplicit way because it requires uh, a knowledge of which names were popular and then a match up between that and the popularity of names in the Gospels. And the very fact of conflation shows that that wasn't happening, that it was very unlikely for someone to to say, oh wow, I noticed that, you know, there are a lot of people named Simon in the Gospels and Acts, and I have a vague notion that that was popular in uh, first century Israel among Jews, and so wow, you know, that indicates something about historicity in these documents, and oh cool, they even have Uh, these extra disambiguating names added here to the popular names, that makes it even more likely to be true. It takes more knowledge and more self-consciousness to recognize that. And all the more so then, it would take way more knowledge and self-consciousness on the part of the authors to do it on purpose in the hopes that somebody would recognize it and consider that people whom they actually had invented were real historical people, and they, you know, fake, faked it so well that people uh, took them to be historical or more historical than than the documents really were. It's just overwhelmingly improbable, and I think that conflation point feeds into that. Um, now, I want to emphasize that I think the most likely uh, cause of These disambiguators being used, like you know, Peter being used to disambiguate Simon, or Magdalene being used to of of Magdala being used to disambiguate one of the Marys, and so forth, was that this is how they were actually known. Um, It's not impossible that an author would indicate a, a disambiguator because he consciously realizes that one is needed but what I think more often happened was this very organic process where the person was known in this way he was a real historical person he really was known in this way um Mary Magdalene really was known as Mary of Magdala and so then when the gospels write about her they use this name because that's how she was known and then it The reason for that is that it just arose organically from the need in the culture to distinguish one Mary from another or one Simon from another. So it doesn't need to be a self-conscious procedure on the part of the author, but if the author is seeking to create a semi-fictional document, then it would have to be a self-conscious procedure. Um, Now, what do I mean by an unnecessary clump? By an unnecessary clump, I mean a, a set of names that have the same first name, and even though they're different characters, where there is a plausible danger of confusing them. They're not just you know absolutely clearly disambiguated by context or something of that kind. Um, so if the author is inventing some of these people, he's creating a problem for himself unnecessarily he could just as well invent someone with a less common name so i'll i'll be explaining how that works in specific cases and that's what i mean by an unnecessary club and there aren't any of these unnecessary clubs for tier c names as i already mentioned now the question that arises then is does the disambiguation part of the argument have any independent force on top of the name statistics argument itself. I will be arguing that it does, but I'm going to state first why you might think that it doesn't, that this is just another way of stating the popularity statistics argument. You might think something like this. Well, once you have eight people named Simon in the Gospels and Acts, then you have to disambiguate at least some of them in order to maintain clarity within your own document and within the set of documents. So that it just kind of, as if the disambiguation just follows almost deductively from the um, popularity. And so then it's just another way of stating the popularity. But I think it goes beyond that. In order to see why it goes beyond that, we, we need to look more at individual documents. For the name statistics argument as a whole, we just count up how many Simons in all of uh, the Gospels and Acts, for example. As if we're putting them all into a single, uh, a single set, a single database. But to consider the unnecessary creation of clumps, the unnecessary creation of the need to disambiguate, and therefore the independent force that the argument has, it's better to go document by document. And that's one reason why this video today or audio is going to be a little longer than mine are usually. Um, so I consider that it has an independent force because it's not just a given that you have eight simons When Mark, let's take it that Mark was the first gospel, but you could do this if you thought Matthew was the first gospel, but uh, Gregor and Blaze clearly take Mark to be the first gospel, which it may well have been. So suppose you're Mark. It's not just given to you that there are going to be a whole bunch of Simons. You know, you can't look forward in time and see other Simons that are going to be added. Um, so within Mark's gospel, you're having the this problem that you didn't need to have. And then you're making more work for yourself by having to add disambiguators. So the creation of artificial persons of popular names, by artificial here I mean fictional, the creation of fictional persons with popular names would create a need for more work, which very well might never be appreciated, as I've just argued, um, that the audience is unlikely to go, wow, that is, it's so realistic because I know this was a popular name, uh, by adding, then having to make up disambiguators, uh, maybe even additional fictional persons, like say, Simon's father being named John or Jonah, in order to disambiguate. That is an additional reason not to do this, not to create this trouble for yourself, And when further authors come along and incorporate the, say, Simons or Judases from an earlier document and then add more on top of them, that's an even uh, additional, that's an additional unnecessary act of creating um, unreal persons and then having to create additional unreal nicknames. Uh, relatives or whatever to disambiguate. So I think this is why uh, this argument has additional force, is because it doesn't just follow uh, automatically that you're going to, okay, we're gonna have this popularity and now you've got this popularity level in front of you and now you've gotta just cope with that by adding disambiguators so that your own document is not confusing. They're actually creating their own problem as they go along. Um, so that's why I consider this to be unnecessary and additional in force. I just want to mention something I'll be mentioning again in the weeks to come. I've recently been rereading a novel called The Spear by Louis Wool, and rereading it aloud, in fact, which is something I sometimes do Uh, with my husband for recreation and DeWall, he has Josephus at his disposal, he uses Josephus a lot he has the Gospels at his disposal various church traditions and so forth, Um, he can look stuff up, he obviously is looking stuff up, and yet nonetheless, he doesn't he doesn't get the tie between disambiguation and popularity so, you know, he has a character named Zadok Bartubel, for example. Zadok is not a popular name, and I can't find Tubal anywhere in the Ilan the database for that place and time, but he's putting them together. Basically, what DeWole seems to have picked up on is this idea that, uh, hey, it was a thing that people did at the time to add bar so-and-so. So he's just like scattering bar so-and-so, bar so-and-so far and wide. That's... So his notion of adding verisimilitude is just to add a whole bunch of bar so and so's uh, without regard to popularity, and so I think that's really interesting because he has resources at his disposal that I don't think, um, you know, Matthew had at his disposal to to try to figure this stuff out, and he seems to have almost in a sense drawn the wrong. Uh, conclusion about what they did at the time and then just uses disambiguators very frequently. Okay, so I'm going to illustrate the argument from unnecessary clumps with regard to three names today, Simon, Judas, and Mary. And you'll see how it works. I'm not going to name every person named Simon, Judas, or Mary in these documents. I'm going to hit some highlights that show how the argument from unnecessary clumps and disambiguation works. All right, so Mark already has Simon Peter and Simon the Cananean both in the list of the 12. So they're in close proximity to one another, which is why they have to be disambiguated because they're both members of the 12. Then he also lists Simon as a, one of the brothers of Jesus um, the context disambiguates that pretty well. Uh, not really. There's not a classical phrase like Simon the such and such or Simon the son of this, but it's it's clear in context these are the brothers of Jesus and Simon the leper, and he calls him Simon the leper. By the way, he couldn't still have been a leper, or they couldn't have been eating at his house. But apparently, he had gotten that as a um, an extra name. And it kind of stuck. He probably didn't enjoy that. But the point is that there's already this unnecessary clump in Mark. Let's suppose that Simon the leper is an unreal person. That he that he didn't exist. All right? That Mark is inventing that name, at least, for that person in the house where Jesus' feet uh, were anointed. Or that he's inventing the entire incident. Um he didn't need to call this guy Simon. He could have called him anything. And he certainly, um, if he called him something else, something less popular, he wouldn't have had to add such a weird uh, disambiguator as the leper, which raises a question like, so he was still a leper and he's holding dinner parties in his house? Okay, far more plausible that this guy really existed and he, he really was known as Simon the leper. Now, Luke has um, the same two Simon clump in close proximity in the list of the apostles that Mark does, but he uses an independent disambiguator. He calls um, the second one the zealot instead of the Canaanite. That shows a certain amount of independence, but it also indicates probably in the culture at the time the fact that because this guy had a common name, he had, especially perhaps among the uh, disciples themselves, this additional indicator added to his name. So again, uh, Luke is adapting this, but then he's giving it a a disambiguator. But now Luke also um, makes his own problem the worse. Um, He repeats the list of the Twelve with its two Simons in the Book of Acts, and then when we get to the portion of Acts where uh, Simon Peter is staying with someone, that guy is called Simon the Tanner, very classic disambiguator. Um, Again, Luke didn't have to call that guy Simon, and given the tendency to conflate, it could even have caused confusion. Was it like, like suppose he didn't have a disambiguator, okay? Um, okay, was that the same guy as the other member of the Twelve, Simon the Canaanian or Simon the Zealot? So he has to give this other disambiguator based on the person's occupation, Simon the Tanner. I think it's less likely that he just made that guy up made up that guy's name. He's not even a very important character. Um, and that that's how the guy was really known. It has that um, mark of historicity about it and would have been awkward for Luke to invent, again, increasing his own problem. Now, in the Gospel of John, um, we find Another Simon, in an unusual place, he is the father of Judas Iscariot. And John has this interesting uh, way of giving Judas Iscariot's name, which is unique to John, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Okay, so this is a double disambiguator. You don't have a lot of these in the Gospels for understandable reasons, because three names all in a row just indicate one guy is awkward. And generally, like with us, if I say, you know, I I have a guy named, let's say, Kyle Jones, um, at least for immediate purposes, even though Kyle and Jones are both pretty popular, putting them together is enough to clear it up for The people to whom I'm speaking within a given context. But occasionally in the Gospels, we get this added thing, which is like here Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. There's not a single one of those double disambiguators for a non popular name, okay, where it's being used as a disambiguator and then there's something further. All right, so now I'm going to go. to Judas to illustrate this, okay? So I want to emphasize what I'm going to call the Lucan clump. So Mark has two Judases, they're, they're pretty widely separated. Um, one is Judas Iscariot, the other is another uh, brother of Jesus in the list. You could say, okay, you know, that's enough. Mark doesn't need to do anything further to disambiguate them. Well, of course, Luke has both of those as figures or characters, but then he adds one, which is Judas, the son of James. Okay, now this is really interesting because this is in uh, Luke's list of the 12 apostles. Now get this, fascinating. His list of the 12 apostles is very similar to Mark's, As I mentioned, there's a different disambiguator for uh, Simon. Uh, He calls him Simon the Zealot. But there's an actual name difference. He doesn't mention Thaddeus, but he does mention Judas, son of James. Now, Balcom argues that they were probably the same person. I think they were probably the same person, but the point is it's not the same name. Thaddeus is much less popular than uh, Judas, and when... Thaddeus is used in Matthew and Mark, in their list of the apostles, they don't disambiguate him. There's no need to disambiguate him. And there, probably when he was called Thaddeus, wouldn't have been a need to disambiguate him among his friends because it's not a, a very widely used name. But Jude or Judas or Judah, those, those forms, that, that was very, quite popular. So what Luke is doing is he's taking out a less popular name and he's putting in a more popular name, which he then has to disambiguate by calling him the son of James. Even if they were the same person, there was absolutely no need for him to do that. And so in a sense, Luke is creating a clump He's creating an unnecessary clump of two in close proximity to one another, right there in the list of the twelve. We've already got Judas Iscariot. Now you're going to give us another Judas, and now you got to call him something else. You know, Judas the son of James, instead of just leaving, leaving it as Thaddeus. I submit that it's far more likely that Luke actually had independent evidence that there was an apostle known as Judas the son of James, and that he puts them in there because of historical knowledge rather than inventing that name, uh, inventing that occurrence of the name Judas. Okay, Um, and then in Acts, again, as I mentioned before, Luke repeats his list to the 12, which contains those two Judases, and in Acts 15, he's listing a couple of people who were in the Jerusalem church, and he mentions someone called Judas Barsabbas. Okay, so Judas the son of Abbas in Acts 15. So he's already got Judas Iscariot and Judas the son of James over there in his first chapter. And easily, if you had just said, you know, they sent, they sent Judas, uh, I believe these are this is one of the people with whom they sent the letter giving the decision of the Jerusalem Council. If they had just said he sent Judas, people might easily think, okay, maybe that was Judas son of James. So now, okay, I got another guy named Judas. I gotta, you know, call him something different. Now I don't think again that Luke self-consciously said, oh, I gotta call him something different. I think he was actually known as Judas Barsabbas. And so, is just given the name that he was known by, but if he's inventing it, he's making the ambiguity potentially worse and then making more work for himself by adding, uh, needing to add a disambiguator. This is what I'm getting at by unnecessary clumps, looking at them book by book. All right, the last one I'm gonna do here is a woman's name, which is Mary. And you'll notice that we haven't talked about women's names heretofore. Um, And that's because there aren't a lot of women's names in the Gospels, it's just a really small set. So you really do have an issue of small sample size, you know, sort of ultra small sample size. Um, As far as it goes, it tends to match popularity statistics, but it's a small sample size. But we can talk about disambiguators, which again illustrates that it is A separate argument related to the main uh, statistics argument, but with its own force, because we can note that um, the Marys are unnecessarily clumping and then are disambiguated um, in places where these are, you know, contested individuals. In other words, they're not all, um, you know, attested by independent sources like or the letters of the Apostle Paul, or something like that. Um, and so the authors, again, are creating a, a problem for themselves by making too many Marys and then having to add disambiguators to at least some of them. Um, and so we don't need a large sample. I can also say that there's not a single place where a woman is disambiguated where she's, uh has an uncommon name. So Joanna, the wife of Huso, that I haven't talked about, Joanna was one of the top female names, even though she's the only one in the Gospels. Okay, so in Mark, we already have a two Mary clump in close proximity to each other, two people right at the cross, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph. In passing, notice that that is another double disambiguation. James, which was a fairly popular name, is being further disambiguated by calling him the less. Um, okay, but if let's suppose that the second Mary didn't exist, that she's an invention of anonymous community transmitters or of Mark, um, he doesn't. He doesn't need to include her then. He can give. A different name okay so that if you're gonna have two women standing there at the foot of the cross just or three women or whatever just give them all different names for goodness sake right Um, so we've got an unnecessary clump unless of course it's history so what I'm saying unnecessary what I'm saying is that from the perspective of invention it's creating an unnecessary awkwardness From the perspective of history, it can just be reportage of the women who were there at the cross. Um, John then uses a unique disambiguator, probably to refer to the same woman named Mary. Uh, He calls her Mary of Clopas, and I think that she's uh, probably the same person. He mentions her also there at the cross. Now, Luke has... Mary, Jesus' mother. Of course, that comes up in his infancy story, but he mentions her again in chapter one, Mary, the mother of Jesus, um, at the time when the church is gathering together and praying. So there she is at the beginning of Acts, and then a few chapters later, Luke has another Mary, unique to Luke, Mary, the mother of John, surnamed Mark. John is a popular name, by the way. we got a That's the third of our um, unnecessary extra, you know, double disambiguators throwing that in in passing. Um, But I'm focusing right now on Mary, the mother of John Mark. Okay, she doesn't appear anywhere else. She's a relatively minor character. She owns a house or is the hostess of a house where the church meets. If he's gonna make up the name of some female character, you know, and he's writing a partially fictionalized account. Why give her such a popular name where already your reader, Theophilus, who's read um, Luke, is going to have some Marys, and you writing your gospel have Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now you've got to give him or give her another disambiguator, and even this more complex one, the mother of John, who was known as Mark. Okay, so classic case where it's, it would be uncalled for, unnecessary in fiction, except on one of these ultra-subtle and highly improbable Cartesian deceiver scenarios for Luke to do this. Okay, so that shows you how The disambiguation argument works in the case of these these clumping names. It's not just given that, oh, I'm gonna have a bunch of Marys, okay, now I'll give them uh, disambiguators. They're successively adding uh, persons, and if it's fictional, they're adding persons that create an unnecessary potential for disambigu... or for ambiguity and a need for disambiguation. Now, next time I'm gonna be talking about something a little different related to the disambiguation argument, namely, individual names that aren't clumping within the Gospels that have disambiguators anyway. The most striking of, of those is Jesus, and I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm not gonna give you too much of a preview here, but I'll be talking about the name Jesus and a couple of others next time in relation to disambiguation. So, I hope you'll come back And I hope that you will follow along because this is a really cool argument and we want to give it its due. So I'll see you next time here at the Lydia McGrew channel where we're making common sense rigorous.